I've always found Magneto from the X-Men a really fascinating character. Now, if you haven't seen X-Men, then Magneto is this all-powerful mutant who has the ability to manipulate metal at his will. And Magneto uses these extraordinary powers he has for evil. So I often wonder, as a structural engineer myself, if I had the power to just make metal move at my will just by a wave of the hand, what would I do with that? In real life, of course, engineers do not have these kinds of superpowers. And in the real world, it can actually be a little bit more difficult to tell the villains from the heroes. You know, I found out some of our technologies are being exported to countries with poor human rights records. Yeah, I think engineers do separate themselves from politics and it's almost a lot easier to focus on a technical problem than to start thinking about the wider impacts. Welcome to Create the Future, a podcast from the Queen Elizabeth Prize for Engineering. I'm your host, Roma Agrawal. Engineering can be a force for good. It can build our world, it can make our lives better, it can lift people from poverty, it can create energy efficient solutions and so much more. But of course there's a darker side as well. You can kill people using engineering technology. And so the impact of engineering really is not black or white. So in today's episode we'll be exploring that topic in more detail. We'll be discussing the ethical quandaries that we can face and what it means to be an ethical engineer. I spoke to Stuart Parkinson, Executive Director of Scientists for Global Responsibility, and Yasmin Ali, who is working on alternative energy solutions. Thank you for having me. Um, I think engineering for me is about solving problems or yeah, creating solutions for people, the people around us. Um, so ethics definitely comes into it for me. Um, and I like to think about, you know, after a day's work, will I be able to sleep at night knowing that I've made the decisions that I've made? That feels like quite a heavy load to carry. Um, Stuart, what, what does engineering mean to you firstly? And then how does ethics play into that? I would define it as using technical skills and existing technologies to try and modify the world and hopefully make it better. That's the that's the $64 million question as to whether you actually do. And then scientific research and development feeds into that and generates new knowledge, new mm. technologies. I mean, I, I've been trained in both engineering and, and scientific research, and I probably do more scientific research and policy-related research these days. So... And then in terms of ethics, there's an awful lot you can say. The engineering institutions, for example, have codes of practice, which defines ethics in terms of very basic things like having the sufficient skills to do your job well, um, not lying or deceiving people. Um, and, and then they'll say something about broader social responsibility. And I think that that's the most interesting bit. How did you get into your current role and activism, Stuart? I, I did a degree in engineering and physics and did a year out in industry. Uh, I worked in an arms company and became very disillusioned. 
that the particular technology I was working on was called image intensifiers. These are devices that amplify light in dark situations. In this context, they were being used for sticking on the top of rifles and so that you could shoot people in the dark. And then you would find out what some of the company's customers were. You know, I found out things about, okay, whether some of our technologies are being exported to countries with poor human rights records. Um, there are all sorts of questions about Britain's foreign policy and military policy. Those sorts of things just make me think uh, uh, it's time to leave this profession. It's funny, right, because on the surface of it, that doesn't sound like um, a particularly insidious piece of technology, but it's what you're using the technology for, isn't it? Stuart, I'm I'm always like interested by this because I know lots of really lovely people who are engineers who work in defence companies and they always say they kind of justify it by with that word defense. So they are, you know, protecting people, protecting the country. This is the issue. I mean, I I think we have to challenge the idea that it is just defense because it isn't. Companies export to countries with poor human rights records. So is that defensive? When Britain sends an aircraft carrier to the other side of the world, is that defensive? You know, it was the Iraq war defensive. You, you quickly get into those issues. I mean, this, this is kind of why I left, because I just thought, I don't know anything about this stuff. And there are some awkward questions that I can't answer and nobody that I work with can answer. And, <laughs> and so I'm, I'm off. I want to do something where I can justify. I, I can look in the mirror at the end of the day and go, yes, I'm justified in doing this. I'm pleased with what I'm doing. And I think in, in Britain, we're particularly bad at discussing these issues. I mean, it's partly through the language, through um, the Ministry of Defence, the defence industry, and and so we, we don't talk about British uh, colonial past or any of that, um, or any of the issues of, of British foreign policy now. We just said, you know, we're exporting weapons to Ukraine now, so, and that's good because the Russians are evil, and, and that's then that's kind of... And you, you start to ask awkward questions about that, and you... you immediately get shut down or oh, well, you're, you're just Putin's um, lapdog or, or anybody else's lapdog, Saddam's lapdog. Choose your dictator. And asking awkward questions about that becomes threatening in itself. And yet, actually, we live in a democratic society. We shouldn't be asking those questions. Are we using the technology properly? What is a reasonable level of military spending, of military equipment to keep us safe without engaging in arms races without um, making wars war likely. Yeah. And just to mention, actually, I'm from Iraq originally. I was born in Baghdad and I remember having power cuts as a kid. So the, the whole Iraq war is like another level of, uh, yeah, thinking for me. And I, I work in energy. So I studied chemical engineering originally and at university, you do get all of the oil companies coming in and basically like taking you out for nice dinners. And when you're a student with not much money, that's quite uh, lucrative at the time. Um, I ended up working for an energy company, so not not one of the big oil and gas companies, and really enjoyed it. And I, you know, I thought I think I was doing something good. I was working in a power station. Uh, supplying electricity to p- 
people that need it. Um, then I did get into oil and gas for about five years and felt quite conflicted the whole time, but I, I did enjoy it and I learned a lot from it, but there was always that thing in the back of my mind. And as the years went by and climate change became more of an important issue and I was questioning what I was doing um, and eventually got out of that. And I work in more of the renewable sector now. Um, but even now, um, there are questions that I struggle with, like if I want to put up a renewable energy project on a site that has protected species, is that okay or is it not? And if I don't do it, will we carry on burning natural gas and emitting carbon dioxide into the atmosphere? And will that actually cause damage to that protected species later on, further down the line? And it's just never quite as black and white as it appears on the surface. And I think, I don't think I was equipped to be able to think about these things during my degree, but I think that's coming in more and more nowadays. This is so fascinating because I, I agree. So I, I went to university about 20 years ago. And again, was these were not topics that we really discussed or thought about very deeply. Um, so if we come back to this idea of engineering decisions that we make not being black and white. And I think, Yasmin, you raise a really, really interesting and important point that just saying energy is renewable doesn't mean that it doesn't have some other kind of impact on our planet. Um, Stuart, can you maybe talk to us about situations where you found perhaps that, you know, you feel like, yeah, this is the right thing to do and this is what I should be doing. But, but even then there is still that conflict and questioning of the ethics around that situation cool there is there are so many um when i was uh, working in academia doing postdoctoral research on climate change and looking at technology transfer we did some consultancy for a large fossil fuel company who said they were interested in getting into renewables there were a lot of awkward experiences associated with this contract well, um, one of them was that I signed a non-disclosure agreement so I can't, um, can't actually talk about the details without breaking that non-disclosure agreement this is 25 years ago and I questioned whether this company was serious about its desire to transition and I think um, history has shown that it wasn't then and it still needs to do a lot more now I, I don't believe them when they say they, they're serious about net zero. And, and do engineers see themselves as being separate from politics and separate from, you know, society and so on? What are your feelings about that? Yeah, I think engineers do separate themselves from politics. And it's almost a lot easier to focus on a technical problem than to start thinking about the wider impacts. But then you could say... If the politics is going to take too long to sort out, then is it worth putting in a technical solution in the meantime? So I, again, it just all gets quite grey and complicated. And I, I was thinking about this yesterday and I thought of one example. So there was someone I spoke to a couple of years ago who worked for a company called Warn Again Technologies and they... Uh, we're putting together a technical solution for recycling polycotton, so a material that a lot of our clothing is made out of. 
Um, so that's great. It's a step in the right direction. But then you think, should we be recycling polycotton or should we be trying to tackle this whole fast fashion problem at the root? Um, but then to change the culture of, well, uh, capitalism really and how we buy and how we wear clothing is such a huge problem that do you then say, okay, well, let's recycle this stuff for the time being till we can have a more permanent solution. So I can see why engineers might focus on the technical side of things. It, it seems easier, doesn't it? I feel like when you've got a technical problem in front of you, we're like, yep, yeah, I know how to solve that. But with the bigger ethical, political questions, I'm, I'm not sure if there's ever a clear right answer. And, and maybe that's what makes it feel very complicated. Is, is that your experience to it? I think th this is the issue. As, as engineers, our skills are in technical issues. And so we see solutions in technical issues. But there are social scientists who work on social problems, political scientists who work on political problems, and their job is to try and understand and advise and find solutions in those areas. So it's important not to over-prioritize the technical solution. I think on the issue of fashion, we need to use psychology to help us um, challenge the fast fashion industry and to encourage people to say, actually, you know, re buying secondhand, recycling and keeping clothes for longer is a good thing and a desirable thing and, and a fashionable thing. So we shouldn't give up on those options. The balance between technical solutions and other solutions uh, is, I think, one of the biggest problems. It's politicians are easily distracted, I think, by shiny solutions. And you see it in, in government policies at the moment. They say, we don't need to change our ways. Technology will save us from climate change. That's rubbish. That's completely dishonest. And, and we do have to change our ways. And the technologies will only help make it easier to change our ways. But we absolutely have to change our ways. We have to cut down on flying considerably. We have to cut down on driving. We have to cut down on eating meat. All these things, no technological solution will be available quickly enough or if ever to tackle those problems. So I think engineers often end up in this situation where we're told we need this power station or we need to recycle this material. But actually, the question is, do, do we need to recycle that material or should we be asking the question further up the supply chain? You know, should we be saying, use the psychology, as Stuart said, and, and change that behaviour? What can we do as engineers to challenge that brief more strongly? I think a, the most basic question is, who do you work for? What's the ethos of the company or the organisation you're working for? And is it just to make money? Are they really highly profit orientated or do they have a wider e ethos? And is that wider ethos serious? Um, are they engaging in, in greenwash? Um, are they actually doing what they say they they desire to do so i think those are the sorts of questions as an individual engineer we should be asking and we should be trying to find the most ethical company that we can or ethical organization that we can and and ask awkward questions within that that organization which can be difficult which is where you need support from like-minded colleagues whether that's inside the organization or, or across the profession yeah, and and I and I think it requires that little bit of power as well because I'm I'm thinking, you know, from my experience, just like with gender as as an example, when I started off 
in the industry, 20, well, 17 years ago, and there would be naked pictures of women on the walls. I didn't feel that I had sort of the platform or the power to challenge that behavior. Now, of course I would, but that, that has required, I guess, some kind of evolution in my growth and also what I guess the culture allows me to challenge. And, you know, does, do I feel like I can challenge this stuff? Yasmin, could you talk to us a little bit about how the transition to renewable energy intersects with the ideas of social justice, of inequality and so on? And how, you know, how do we make sure that this sort of utopia of having all of our energy coming from renewable sources actually has an impact on on the lives of different communities and so on? Yeah, well, I think this is, it's really an opportunity to have this idea of a just transition. Um, so there are lots of people in the world who don't have access to to energy, to electricity, which is really a pretty basic human right these days. Um, and this is an opportunity to make sure that everyone has access to electricity and we don't have to go through the same route that we've gone through um, like for example in the UK where you start off with coal and then go to gas and then switch to renewables in some of these other places there's the opportunity to skip that and skip that carbon dioxide generating step and go straight to renewables um, so yeah I think there is there's a real opportunity there. Stuart, in, in your work, are you engaging with, I guess, different communities that might be receiving these changes in energy? And, and how do we engage with, with the people, the humans that are at the receiving end of this? So I work for Scientists for Global Responsibility, which is uh, a non-governmental organisation, a membership organisation, which our, our strapline is promotes ethical science um, and technology. And, and by that, we mean something that contributes to peace, social justice and environmental sustainability. So in that, we do um, education work with schools around things like climate change, sustainable lifestyles. We do work on promoting um, what we call re globally responsible careers. So we give careers information related to particularly the sustainable development goals and and career options in science and technology, which help contribute to those goals. And then we do research and campaigning around particular issues, ethical issues in science and technology. So at the moment, we're doing a lot of work around, um, yes, yeah, sustainable energy um, and also um, military carbon emissions is um, a particular um, research area at the moment and, and whether or not militaries can go green. Um, which is a <laughs> wonderful ethical dilemma, if ever there was one. <laughs> if we want to push this conversation about ethical engineering forward, where should that conversation start, Stuart? I, I think it has to start in school. And there is not enough discussion about science and society um, and the way science and technology interacts with society. Um, and, and the ethical dilemmas that arise and the ways in which technology can cause as many problems as it solves. 
Um, it was technology that gave us fossil fuels, but it's technology that gave us access to clean energy. It's a constant dilemma that we have to be aware of from an early age. And I think this is actually a way to engage younger people in these issues, because when, when you're young, sort of learning about the fundamentals of physics, well, there's a certain section of school children who will find that interesting, the geeks like me, but a lot of kids would just go, what's this got to do with anything? And if you start talking about the way that science and technology affects society, you get much wider interest. So even if they don't go on to study these these subjects in, in later life, they will have a un- better understanding of how this interacts with their own life as, as it develops their own world that they live in. You're in good nerd company here, Stuart. Yasmin, if I might <laughs> rope you into the nerd crew. Um, <laughs> sure, why not? <laughs> you've worked for governments in the past. You know, how do you, Where do you see government's role in pushing this conversation forward? Well, I mean, government, I, I worked on energy innovation funding. So as the person who was designing some of these innovation competitions, I was able to think about the the ethics behind it. So I think as a civil servant, as opposed to a politician, um, I'm able to influence where some of that government money goes and think about the the right things to do with it. Um, so I think there's quite a lot of power that um, the government holds and they they can use it to, to influence where things go. Um, government does use its influence um, to drive things in certain directions. So um, if you are doing a big government-funded uh, infrastructure project, you can put into your uh, procurement rules that you want, I don't know, green concrete or whatever it might be. And so there are lots of levers that can be used. What I'm picking up from our conversation is that both of you are incredibly passionate about what you do and you're incredibly passionate about the bigger questions as well. So you're not one of those engineers that's sitting there focused only on the technical solutions. But talking of technical solutions, Yasmin, I do want to ask you a little bit more about what you're doing right now, about hydrogen, about you know the renewable energy, and, and tell me why you think that this could possibly be a force for good. Sure. Yeah. So I work on green hydrogen project development. So uh, if we use hydrogen as a fuel, it will not emit any carbon dioxide into the atmosphere, uh, but it's not as uh, dreamy as I just made it sound there. There's obviously a catch, which (laughs) is that hydrogen doesn't exist uh, just there for us to capture. We have to make it uh, or we have to produce it. Uh, And we do that by splitting water. Uh, into hydrogen mm-hmm. and oxygen. So we need an electricity input and we need water to be able to do that. Um, so for the hydrogen to be green, the electricity needs to be from renewable sources. Uh, so again, mm. you can probably already think about some of the types of issues that uh, I am dealing with. Uh, but yeah, that's why Hydrogen is such a big topic in the energy industry at the moment. It's a potential fuel that we can use in industry uh, or for transport uh, or for heating or all sorts of things. Um, And the reason that I'm passionate, I think I've come through quite a long journey to get here where I studied chemical engineering. I was almost told that I would work in oil and gas because that's what chemical engineers Mm. did at the time that I was (laughs) studying. Um, 
I did that for a while, uh, felt really bad about it, and then decide, made a conscious decision to move into renewables because I just believe that that's where we should be heading to have a more sustainable world and a more sustainable planet and somewhere for future generations to live. I'm going to ask possibly a stupid question here, but so you are using electricity and water to create a different form of energy. I don't understand why 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 are we going into into that circle? Does that make sense? Like you're using electricity to create Yeah, yeah, that's a great question. <laughs> <laughs> so, um I would always say if you can use the electricity directly, do that because that is more efficient and makes more sense. Um but there are certain cases where you can't really do that. So, for example, if you have a heavy goods vehicle like a a big truck um if you put batteries in to run that they would be so enormous the vehicle would be so heavy and you wouldn't have much space left to put any goods on it so in in that case it makes more sense to use a different type of fuel for example hydrogen um so there are cases like that where hydrogen makes sense um there's quite a there's a bit of a contentious subject when it comes to using hydrogen for home heating. This is something that the UK government is thinking about right now. Yeah, I mean it's such a complicated topic. Uh I don't really think it's a good idea, but then you look at the types of houses that have gas boilers in them right now and some of them are so badly insulated that you can't really give them an electric alternative and the only option really that i can see or think of is hydrogen that's a renewable option um the uh, the other option that i think is good is to just knock them all down and start again that's not not very popular um I still can i just come in there it, it's it's an interesting topic um having just refurbished a 100 year old house with um solid wall insulation put in a heat pump um, yeah. electric form of heating and have done a few other energy efficiency measures. I think the potential for refurbishment is enormous. And if you look at the models of, of where our housing stock is going to be, 90%, I think, 80 to 90% of our um, the homes that are going to be around in, in 40, 50 years' time are, are going to be the ones that are still here today. So, and, and yeah, when you take into account embodied energy, refurbishment is just, that the option that we are not pursuing in anything like the amount and that opens the door to a lot more use of, of heat pumps and I, I think you're right Yasmin that there will always be exceptions to that but I, I question as to whether it's that large whether the proportion of, of building stock is that large that we will be using hydrogen for heating and I think the government is, is emphasizing this too much. Uh, yeah because I'd, I'd, I'd have views about that Yasmin. Um, there's a whole movement at the mo um, moment about you know refurbish not build not rebuild and so there's there is that conflict and, 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 and it's exactly that energy point that makes me pause and ask myself and and admit I guess again that it's not black and white and there is a conflict and that sometimes you might have to knock a building down because it's so badly insulated that the energy implications of it are actually worse than the demolition and rebuilding of it in the first place. So again, there is not a clear answer um, to that question, I think. We've been discussing a lot of very complicated things today. And I think 
what we're you know realizing is that things aren't black and white things are nuanced these decisions are difficult to make so Stuart in your work with this idea of ethical responsibility how do you make a decision about how to proceed when faced with quite an entangled problem like this one there are there are a number of elements um from an engineering perspective, I think it's important not to overpromise new technologies, the capability of new technologies. And, and I think politicians <laughs> are very good at overpromising. And if you talk to the engineers behind the technologies, they're more circumspect, which is good to hear. But it's unfortunate that the policymakers, in trying to come up with a solution, go for what they think is an easy win and then it's not and it's a bad decision because they've thrown themselves into it. So I think it's it's important to talk to the public as much as possible about the technologies, explain what the technologies can and can't do, what we do and don't know. That's an important element. And also to talk to the policymakers and try and stop them <laughs> going headlong too far into a down a, a particular path that is speculative and ignoring other ones. I think th this is the problem I think we have at the moment that the government is focused on, oh, there are these shiny new technologies that we we can solve climate change with, um, where everything from advanced nuclear to, um, you know, direct energy, air capture for um, taking CO2 out of the atmosphere. And all these, these things are highly speculative, whether we'll get them, well, we, we certainly won't get them in time, but whether we'll get them um, at, a, at a cost somewhere down the line um, is also questionable. But, but, but the issue is we need to do something now, rapidly now, and a lot of it involves social, political and economic change. And that is what they are too scared to talk about. And, and as engineers and scientists, we need to say, well, actually... This is where we need to focus the attention. The technological solutions aren't going to be around quickly, quickly enough, um, reliably enough, or economically enough. Um, and, and we need to start thinking about other options. We need to not just start thinking. We need to get on with doing other options, even though they're difficult. The social options may be difficult, but so are the technological options. It sounds like engineers need to be out there telling these stories and engaging with the public, um, having these discussions and maybe even having more engineers in government. Um, Yasmin, I know you do engineering communication and so on. Can you tell us a little bit about that intersection between your work and going out and speaking to the public and how important you think that is? Yeah, so I do quite a bit of going into schools and talking about careers. And it is interesting the sorts of questions that I get asked by um, quite young people who are really aware of the world around them and the interaction between the energy sector and politics. Um, so I think we probably need to just keep that link alive um, and encourage young people to maintain their interest in the world around them as well as STEM and STEM careers. It's really good seeing the younger generations now who are coming into work who do seem to have a lot more um, information about the world around them and they're not quite as focused on that one task that they're doing. And that's really great to see. And one of the things we can do is probably ask them their opinions. So, you know, see, say, what do you think about the ethics of this thing that we want to do? And 
gather all those different opinions, not just from our senior managers, but from um, other members of the team as well. Stuart, are, are the young generation giving you hope? Yes. <laughs> it's one of the few areas that is. Um, <laughs> no, I think there are certain sections of the engineering community that give me hope as well. But um, but yeah, the, the transformation over the last few years and all the Fridays for Future protests. Mm. I've been banging on about this stuff for 30 years and it, it's hard to remain hopeful <laughs> when you've been I can doing imagine. that. We, we are seeing a transition, but it's not fast enough. But nevertheless, the transition tends to go in leaps and bounds. It's sort of, you know, you'll get a fast change for a few years and then it will stop and then a fast change again. And we're seeing that at the moment with, with young people engaging in a way they haven't. And it's very difficult as as an older person, and particularly when you get to my age and start having grandkids and stuff and you <laughs> were completely out of touch. Of, you know, Instagram is a, is a complete mystery to me, let alone TikTok. And so trying to get through to the younger generation, they're just a boring old bloke in his 50s which is, and, and you're part of the problem there are those sorts of images and to an extent they're largely deserved I, I, well I wouldn't I wouldn't call you a boring old bloke Stuart personally but um, <laughs> what, what does your what does your ideal vision of the future look like oh well <laughs> <laughs> that that's a difficult one I've tried a lot of things in my time including living in environmental communities and and it's never as easy as you think um, trying to find something um ideal i think i think it's a world where democracy is functioning better much better than it is as good as it can do in some of the best countries um a world where we take peaceful uh, efforts to find peace and and um non-violent solutions to conflict much more seriously mm-hmm. Um, where where gender inequality and racial inequality is is much better and and uh, 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 and a key cornerstone is of course we use engineering to um, help us create the the technologies that are both sustainable and and provide our, our basic needs and it, and it's one I, I think a critical factor that's often very very lost is the inequality in the world. And our economic system feeds that inequality. And, and while we have a system that's so unequal and, and you get a situation where the top 10% of the world is responsible for 50% of the carbon emissions, and it really is about changing the lifestyles of the rich or the wealthy, and, and that you don't have to be very wealthy in global terms to be part of that 10%. I mean, we're probably all here part of that 10%. Um, that that's the sort of society that we need to to address that inequality and that that's fundamental and if we're not doing things that address that inequality and bring and not not just bringing people out of poverty but if if you can't address the inequality you're always going to have the the huge consumers that take up a large share of resources and we live on a finite earth and and we, we can't we can't go on like this and while you're talking about inequality on these big social kind of political worldwide scales, I think we need to remember as engineers that our engineering, our work feeds into that. We, we're not separate from that. And we need to really think about what our contribution to that inequality is. Um, what about you, Yasmin? What what do you hope for in the future and with your work? Um, I'm pretty focused on 
the energy transition and moving from this fossil fuel world that we're in to something that's more sustainable. And I think uh, if we had lots of renewable energy up and once you get that up, the fuel is free. So electricity should, in theory, be really cheap for everyone. Um, so that's the kind of thing that I'm working towards. Um, and that's pretty UK focused at the moment, but I think we can achieve that as a globe for other countries that don't have as much access to energy at the moment and achieve that just energy transition. The idea of having cheap electricity at the moment just feels very, very alien from where I'm sitting um, in my home in London. But thank you so much for having this really, really interesting conversation. I think some of the key factors I'm going to take away from speaking to you, Stuart, and to you, Yasmin, is that there are very complicated questions out there, things that might seem shiny, new, and solve the you know solutions to solving all our problems are not going to be that straightforward. There are nuances to consider. We need to be talking to young people more. We need to be t- discussing ethics and conflict and dilemmas with within our education systems and i and i feel like ultimately this really comes down to us being curious about how systems work around us and what our contribution can be as engineers to reduce inequality um so thank you so much for being here thank you thank you You've been listening to Create the Future, a podcast from the Queen Elizabeth Prize for Engineering and Peanut and Crumb. This episode was presented by me, Roma Agrawal, and produced by Bridie Addison Child. Look out for new episodes every fortnight with conversations from pioneering engineers, designers, technologists, and thinkers. To find out more, follow QE Prize on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. 